This is Buck's First Thoughts, the news you need to get through your day in 45 minutes. Make sure you subscribe on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, the Fauciites are running for cover more with each passing day, which makes me happy to see they were completely wrong. They used the tools of fear and social media suppression and groupthink to silence uh, dissent. But now it's all coming out and it should. And there should be accountability as well. We'll certainly get into this and more in a moment. But I, I had a recent experience where I had a meal delivery service and it sent me the wrong thing. And guess what? I didn't have to get on the phone. I was able to text them. I was able to just go back and forth over text message to fix it. This is why you need Podium. That's what Podium does. That's what Podium provides for you. You know, Podium is a messaging platform that is powering your business. It helps you reach your customers wherever they are. Business messaging with Podium helps you gain reviews, collect payments, communicate with customers, and capture leads all from a single inbox. Podium helps you adapt to the changing customer expectations out there. When I find a business, like I just told you about, I can text, I use that business more because it's more convenient for me. I get my problem dealt with quickly. I don't have to wait on hold. And I just know that this is what I want to do going forward. I want it to be that simple and straightforward. I always tell people, don't don't leave me a voicemail. Text me, right? Same idea here. I don't want to have to wait to talk to a customer service rep for something that can be handled in three or four text messages. Podium lets you do it. You know, RP Alamo increased its business by 20% using Podium. They said that they've generated more revenue, decreased vacancy rates, and pulled in more leads they could have ever done before in multiple years. Podium is priceless for, for them. That's Tony, the owner of RPM Alamo, writing in about his success with this. It's so easy for your business right now to help you reach more customers, get more leads, just have a better user experience for everybody who's using your product. Get started free today at podium.com slash buck. That's P-O-D-I-U-M dot com slash buck. Podium.com slash buck. Well, to understand the origins of the virus, uh, Rachel, rather than being contributory to the development of drugs or vaccines. It's more to prevent this from happening again, to understand the origins so that you can be able to be prepared, whatever the origin is. You know, there's this concern, is it a natural evolution or is it something that happened out of a lab, an accident or what, or what have you? It is important to understand that, but it is being approached now in a, in a, in a very vehement way, in, in a very distorted way, I believe, by attacking me. I think the, the question is extremely legitimate. You should want to know how this happened so that we can make sure it doesn't happen again. But what's happened in the middle of all that, I've become the object of extraordinary, I believe, completely inappropriate, distorted, uh, misleading and misrepresented attacks which, you know, it is what it is, but it's it's happening, and, and that's unfortunate. Somehow it's all about Fauci still. Somehow it's all about St. Fauci. Oh, gosh, we're all supposed to feel so badly because he's receiving public criticism. Was he open to other ideas when the Democrats and the leftist authoritarians elevated him 
to the status where he could determine policies across the nation that shut down businesses, that separated people from loved ones? Was he humble at all about what he knew and didn't know when people were being prevented from seeing their relatives, even relatives who were dying, because we had to listen to the science? Was there honesty from him about the origins? Was there honesty from him about what we knew and when we knew it when it came to COVID-19? No, of course not. He pretended to know a lot that he didn't know. And now we're in a position, now we're in a point where the evidence has become not just a preponderance, but the evidence is now getting to the point where I would say it is clear that this came from a lab on balance, looking at everything. It's a circumstantial case. I'm open to there being other theories. I'm open to there being other evidence. But right now, if you were if you were a jury and you were using a civil case standard where it's you know, greater than 50 percent, you definitely would say it's a lab. I'd say we're getting close to beyond a reasonable doubt, a criminal justice standard. And I think we're getting to the point now where nothing else makes sense. So absent other evidence, you'd have to say this is the story of a lab leak. And that's what it is. Um, There's a piece in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. The science suggests a Wuhan lab leak. The COVID-19 pathogen has a genetic footprint that has never been observed in a natural coronavirus. Uh, I, I have to say, this is where you do get into expertise and levels of knowledge that people outside of the scientists uh, community are not going to have. If you've never worked with these things, if you don't have very specific high level training, You're not going to know what the heck they're talking about when they get into uh, CGG or uh, CGG, CGG, Cove 2. I mean, I I don't even really look. I, I read through this a few times. It has to do with genetic sequencing and it has to do with the actual structure of the virus, the amino acids. I mean, this is getting down to the atomic level of what goes into a virus. And here's the the basic takeaway, right? These are the, uh, here's what they write. A genome is a blueprint for the factory of a cell to make proteins. The language is made up of three-letter words, 64 in total, that represent the 20 different amino acids. For example, there are six different words for the amino acid arginine, the one that is often used in supercharging viruses. Every cell has a different preference for which word it likes to use the most. In the case of the gain-of-function supercharge, other sequences could have been spliced into this same site. Instead of a CGG-CGG, known as a double CGG, that tells you the protein factory to make two arginine amino acids in a row, you'll obtain equal lethality by splicing any one of 35 of the other two-word combinations for double arginine. So this is what is is being said here, in in essence, right? Because they really do get into the science. This is by Stephen Kay and Richard Muller. 
Stephen Kay is the founder of Atosa Therapeutics, and Muller is an emeritus professor of physics at the University of California, Berkeley, and a former senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. These are two scientists who are telling you straight up, when you really look at what the COVID-19 virus is, what it is made up of, it is almost certain that this involved human in-lab manipulation. You would have to believe in extreme coincidence. And remember, there's always the possibility out there of extreme coincidence, right? Even, even when they do you know, DNA results, they'll say, well, the, the chance of this being somebody else's DNA is like one in a billion. Okay, so it's you. You're the, you know, if it's a crime scene, they've got your DNA, it's one in a billion, you're the guy. We, we, we don't sit around worrying about the one in a billion chance it's some other guy. They didn't give us odds here, but they're saying that in that this aligns the structure, the basic structure of the COVID-19 virus aligns with an in the lab thesis for gain of function research changes. So this is the much more likely situation. This is now getting to the point where it's it's clear that that is what happened. And now China is never, they will never admit it. They'll always say, well, there's a possibility there's something else. Because imagine the consequences. Imagine what this would open up. I mean, you had Trump over the, over the weekend saying that there need to be reparations from China. Play nine. The time has come for America and the world to demand reparations and accountability from the Communist Party of China. We should all declare within one unified voice that China must pay. They must pay. They must pay, he says. Do you think they will? Do you think they plan on it? No. In fact, China, the same way that they refuse honesty about their own history. I mean, you can't teach about Mao's famine and the 40 to 60 million dead and the weaponization of starvation the Chinese Communist Party engaged in against its own people. You can't teach that. You can't talk about that in China. You can't talk about the one-child policy in China. You, you can't have these discussions. Folks, this is an authoritarian regime. They don't care what the rest of the world thinks. They've got a lot of influence, a lot of money, and a lot of people. And they're going to do what they want to do and what they can do to maintain power. That's it. It's no moral accountability. But bring this back for a moment to Fauci. He took us down the wrong path along with many others. Why? Because the most important thing to them in 2020 in the election year, well, in the election in general, was to defeat Donald Trump. That was the single most important service they could provide the country in their minds, more so than getting the origins of COVID-19 right. They have corrupted science. They have undermined the public's faith in actual data. And the ramifications of this are long-lasting and deeply destructive. People will not, will not look at scientific data. They will not look at anyone who believes there's a consensus around science the same way, at least those who are capable of independent thought and applying reason and rationality to complicated questions. The sheep 
who still march around with their masks on outside, even after vaccination, the sheep are never going to change. But the rest of us have an obligation to continue to chase the truth. Fauci is a fraud. Don't ever forget it. And I'm just wondering, and you touch on this in the new book, where you see people like the former president and some Republicans targeting Dr. Anthony Fauci now, saying he should be fired, painting him as the big villain in this entire pandemic. I wonder what you make of that. I think it's totally ridiculous. I mean, you know, Fauci has served under seven presidents. He's been a stalwart in public health and more obviously more people trust him than trust the former president. So I think a lot of the the reaction that you find from the Trump administration and people that work for it is a, a kind of resentment of, you know, the fact that Fauci is still in public life and the former president is on the margins. What an idiotic response you get from Lawrence Wright on CNN. But but the stupidity that you can expect in defense of Fauci and Fauciism knows no bounds. They'll say anything. They'll they'll speak about this in ways that you could look at them and say, are, are you actually idiots or are you just pretending? It doesn't matter. What are they going to do? Admit that they burned all credibility as journalists, as scientists, the lockdowners, the Fauciites burned all their credibility pretending to know so much more than they did, being wrong over and over again, and doing so in a way that ultimately led to power for their side. They must defeat Trump. This pandemic was the bolt of lightning in our electoral politics that gave the Democrats a you know once-in-a-century opportunity to win an election that they absolutely should not have been able to win. And there's a lot of things that went on. There's a lot of things we could talk about that the pandemic did that changed the way a vote on Donald Trump after four years would have gone. But now we see with this Biden team, the, the Democrats who are in charge, these people are not good at governance. They're not impressive. They're not making America a safer, better, stronger place. No, they're making it a weaker, less prosperous, more onerous, more depressing place to be. That's what the Democrats excel in. But we're all in it together. Equally miserable. That's what they that's what they offer as the end result of their policies. Oh, it's so much better than it was under Trump. Right. That's what they tell you. Oh, yeah. How? In what way? What has gotten better? I could talk to you about a lot of things that have gotten worse. But now they. They, they create straw men and they throw up all these defenses of how of Fauci. And it's so mean. And Fauci's a great. Listen, to this guy, he served under seven presidents. He's a bureaucrat who, who sat around going to meetings, you know, telling people to have safe sex and wash their hands during flu season. That was really his contribution. If you if you don't believe me, you think I'm exaggerating. Go back and look at some of the stuff he used to say about HIV. Totally wrong. Totally wrong. And what do they always say? Oh, well, the science evolved. Well, you see, if they had some humility and were willing to admit that they were making conclusions, they were drawing conclusions and making policies that they shouldn't have been based upon the actual certainty or lack thereof of the science, I'd be more forgiving. But they create false consensus. They leverage fake certainty. And then when we finally prove that they're wrong, they say, well, yeah, I guess we learned some new stuff. Think of the psychological damage that has been done to this country. I was out this weekend. I was in a, I was in Central Park 
in Manhattan and and the people out in the park were thankfully unmasked. But then I walk out and you go on the streets and everyone's still masked up. I was going to make a reservation at a restaurant that said that you can't that for all people who dine inside, you have to to eat in the restaurant. You have to show proof of vaccination. And I just want to say, well, your staff must all be vaccinated. So what the heck is the problem? They're fine. They're protected. What? Oh, I see. This is now a the, the, the vaccination card is going to become the new virtue signaling that masks masks are going out of style now for people who are take the virus seriously. Uh, now it's going to be vaccination cards. And they can demand, you know, private places are going to demand proof of this. You got to show me the email. You got to show me the card you have. Uh, otherwise, you can't eat here. Oh, as if that's reasonable or rational. I mean, I hope that places that do that, uh, restaurants that do that, um, suffer business-wise uh, dramatically. Because what they're doing is absurd. It's not rooted in the science. And they're acting like a bunch of babies. All right? Their staff, the staff, I know the staff at this particular restaurant, they're young people. Actually, one of them is a guy I grew up with. They're not at high risk to begin with. And they're all vaccinated. So they're going to tell someone like me, who is immune from a, co- a prior COVID infection that has been cleared, they're going to tell me that I can't eat in their establishment because I'm not going to get injected with a vaccine that I don't need and that six months from now I might have to get a booster for anyway. I'm not welcome there. Okay, let's let's have that conversation then. You know, but but ultimately th- this became so politically tribal and the left made this such an issue of virtue signaling and being part of the in-group and everything else that people now you see, I mean, they're, it's like they're suffering emotional and intellectual damage from Fauciism that just lingers on. It's simply absurd. It's absurd. And we're supposed to believe what? The Biden administration is going to hold China accountable now? I, I don't think anybody really believes that and i'm i'm seeing that donald trump is feeling a little bit more a little bit more uh of a need to get out there and speak about what happened in that chinese lab and speak about fauci who is as i've said all along i i am proud every time i called fauci an evil little totalitarian smurf a democrat lab coat tyrant a you know an authoritarian who's just not that bright and who's been skating along as a bureaucrat for decades and decades. Every time I said that was true. Trump also knew this guy was old, but Trump should have fired him. But he wouldn't do it. Play eight. The media, the Democrats and the so-called experts are now finally admitting what I first said 13 months ago. The evidence demonstrates that the virus originated in a Chinese government lab. Couldn't say it. You couldn't say it. And Dr. Fauci, who I actually got along with, he's a nice guy. He's a great promoter, you know, (laughs) not a great doctor, but he's a hell of a promoter. He is, isn't he? Uh, That's that's what you're that's what you're seeing. That's the reality of this circumstance. Dr. Fauci understood the politics as a bureaucrat. That's really his skill set. Which way is the wind blowing? How do I elevate myself in the system and remain protected by the system? What did he do that was helpful in this whole process? What was the what was the Fauci decision 
that now that we have even more information, you say that was really smart. That made a lot of sense. I'm telling you, I sit here. I don't think there is one. I don't think there is a place where Dr. Anthony Fauci made a call that in retrospect, you say that was a smart, gutsy call. I think this guy was wrong on everything at every moment that it counted. And the Democrats don't want to admit this because he was their single most effective tool against Donald Trump's reelection. And it was all a fake, a fraud. That's who he is. Well, Maria, the more the more we see, the more we know every sign, every piece of evidence that we've seen today continues to stack up to suggest that this did indeed come. This Wuhan virus came from the virology lab there in Wuhan. Uh, we've seen almost no evidence that supports the zoonotic theory that it somehow leapt from a bat uh, to another species. Uh, this wasn't the politically correct thing to say back in the spring of last year when I began to see evidence accumulating in that direction. Uh, what precisely happened, we don't know. But every one of those laboratories uh, that the Chinese engage in, just like, frankly, every state on enterprise, is operated and controlled by the People's Liberation Army or their security apparatus. That's certainly true at the Wuhan Institute of Virology as well. We don't know precisely what was taking place there because the Chinese Communist Party is covering it up and won't let us know. But there are a lot of unanswered questions about what these activities were why they were engaged with them, were they connected to their military in any way, and if, in fact, this leak came from that laboratory. Is it beyond the pale? Now, this is, this is a theory. I want to be very clear on this. I'm not saying this happened. I'm asking us to think about this possibility, especially given what we weren't allowed to say, according to the consensus, the, uh, the Democrat consensus on science that has been exposed as a fraud. But... Let's just think this through for a moment. Is it possible, is it plausible that the Chinese Communist Party and the the People's Liberation Army of China, uh, is it possible that they may have wanted to understand gain of function or, or understand where a virus can be made more lethal, how it can be made more lethal through gain of function, not just to be able to deal with a possible outbreak better, but to have at their disposal, should they want to, the weaponized, uh, a weaponized virus. Is that, is that something that's so immoral? I mean, China's got a lot of nuclear weapons. China's got all kinds of stuff that I'm sure we don't know about or even talk about in this country. This is an immoral regime. And this is a regime that puts people today in concentration camps. This is a this is a country, a, a government that's willing to sterilize people, its own people. That will enforce that enforced a one child policy. Now, this is a government that in its history, as I mentioned earlier. Because of its incredible, stupendous communist Marxist induced blunders created an enormous famine with the Great Leap Forward that killed over 40 million. I mean, the estimates of it, they don't really even know, but millions and millions of people starved to death. A horrible way to die. Families, whole villages starved to death. This was in the 60s. All right, this was not long ago. Um, and, and I think that everyone needs to start to see this as... Uh, a, a, I'm sorry, you know, it was 58 to 62, so to be clear. I mean, I want to say it's the 60s. I mean, it's kind of the late 50s, early 60s. Um, but when you start to look at what 
really is at the heart of the Chinese Communist regime. There's no moral revulsion from uh, from doing extremely horrific things to their own people. You don't think that they would have at least as a possibility want to keep open the possibility that they could unleash a plague anywhere on the world they wanted to. I mean, they've got nuclear weapons that they am sure would be willing to use if if they felt that it was not even if it was in self-defense, they would feel if it was in their interest, they should use nuclear weapons. Uh, this is this is a government that is willing to embrace extreme calculated evil. And so I think we have to at least leave open the possibility. I, I'm not yet at the place where I find it. I don't find it plausible. That's not the same thing as saying I don't think it's uh, I, that, that I can tell you for sure it didn't happen. I don't find it plausible that this was intentionally released. I don't find that plausible. Um, that doesn't make sense to me. But I understand people make that case sometimes. They say, well, China was willing to sacrifice some portion of itself in order to get a, a, a jump on the rest of the world from this. But th- I, I'm just telling you, I don't find that theory compelling. I don't, that doesn't add up to me. I do believe, and I'd put it at 75% certainty in my mind. That's in my mind. That's just, I'd put it at 75% certainty that this, this was an engineered virus coming out of a lab. And some of you are probably yelling at me, Buckets, you should be 95%. But I, I just, just to leave open the possibility of some zoonotic missing link thing that we haven't been able to found, uh, been able to find, or they have been able to find, um, I would say it's 75%. But would China have been willing to engage in gain-of-function research not so that they'd be better able to stop a pandemic should it if it were to come uh, break out naturally, but so they'd have the knowledge about how to supercharge viruses for weaponization purposes should they choose to use it for that reason. Do I believe that China, as a government, would have in 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 its mind we want to learn how to turn a virus ultra lethal and ultra fast spreading? I do think that that's possible. I do find that credible. And could that have influenced some of the research going on in this laboratory? With some degree of uh, plausible deniability that that's really what they were doing, right? They say it's so they can stop a plague. But isn't it also possible that they wanted to know how to start one? Just in case. Just in case. I think, I think the answer is yes. Pompeo, who was a very able Secretary of State under Trump, is making the rounds now telling everybody that we need to stop just thinking of China as a competitor, right? We can be friends. We are economic competitors with the EU, for example. We're economic competitors with Britain, France, Germany. But we're not looking to undermine those countries. We don't want to see economic catastrophe in those countries. We feel a kinship with not just the people, but with the governments of those countries, and many others. Japan is another one. With, with our allies, it's like, a, it's like a tennis match that we're hoping that we win, but at the end we shake hands and, you know, they're millionaires, we're millionaires, and we get to go give, uh, you know, our interviews to the media and everyone lives to, lives to play another day kind of a thing. With China, it's different. They want to beat us. They want us to, you know, then they want to crack, uh, they want to crack a racket over our head and end our career. 
And that's it. I mean, they have a very different approach to the sense of competition they have with the United States. And Pompeo understands that. He's out there telling everybody that. Play three. The Chinese Communist Party presents the most significant challenge to our way of life of any adversary that we have out there today. I heard him the other day say that they were a competitor, that China was somehow a competitor. Europe is a competitor. Japan is a competitor. The Chinese Communist Party wants to take us out. They want the world to operate on a system that looks like the one that they operated, tyranny, authoritarianism. We can't let that happen. And if President Biden is going to tout miles traveled and hours spent as the hallmark of success, I promise you Xi Jinping will see that as weakness. And our children and grandchildren will live in a United States that's very, very different. They want to take us out. That's one of the major philosophical differences when it comes to foreign policy between Uh, the Trump America first and just general right in America versus Biden, the Democrats and the Marxist leftist types. They really think that the problems of foreign policy all come from the U.S. and that our our opponents, our competitors, none of them are really truly enemies, whether it's the Iranians, the North Koreans or the Chinese. They're not enemies. We just have created a circumstance where there's misunderstanding And if only we, the Americans, do things differently, we can fix the problem. I think this is a fundamental misconception of what's going on in the world and the approach of different regimes and how they treat their their own people and and humanity in general. I think that there's always a reluctance. I know there's a reluctance among Democrats to be willing to say that America is a more moral regime that America is a more ethical state than these other countries, and that the problems that we are dealing with, the, the challenges that we are facing, are a result of their transgressions. Notice that, that in America, I mean, here, the, the focus of our media was always, when Trump was in office, away from Chinese culpability for the virus. It's xenophobic, it's racist. And on Trump, on America, on the anti-maskers, that was the problem. No, I think we've all seen, folks, I I think we're pretty clear on the fact that it was gain-of-function research in the Wuhan lab and the escaped virus that was the problem. It was not, in fact, Donald Trump and hydroxychloroquine and bleach and whatever other nonsense they talk about. So to get those answers, to do a proper investigation, you're going to need, the U.S. is going to need access to the labs. Will you demand that? Uh, Will you put teeth on it? Will you even go as far as sanctions on China if they keep inspectors out? I think the international community is clear that um, we have to have, the international community has to have access. It has to have information. Uh, It has to have uh, meaningful uh, So what's the real pressure the U.S. will put on China for access to the lab? If uh, China denies the information, denies the access, uh, denies the transparency that's needed, and you kind of it expect is, that. It, well, let's that's see. Been the because, history. Uh, Mike, at the end of the day, it's profoundly in China's interest uh, to do this as well. Because, look, it suffered too uh, in the uh, in the outbreak of this pandemic. It it uh, it presumably has an interest as well, especially if it uh, purports to be a responsible international actor, to do everything it can to provide all the information it has to make sure we can uh, hopefully prevent this from happening again. No pressure to speak of. They'll talk about it, but they won't do anything. And this was one of the moments of of Trump's presidency that was uh, honestly among the most 
revolutionary that that not only was he did he identify the challenge and the problem of China in a in a really important and powerful way, but was willing to do something about it. I remember when we were told that Trump's tariffs on China would result in economic in enormous economic losses for Americans. Oh, my God. Trade wars lead to real wars was a thing you used to hear. Meanwhile, China had all kinds of tariffs and barriers in place against us. We just weren't weren't doing anything about it. But it took Trump to come along, somebody that felt like they knew what was really happening and have those those gut instincts about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. That's one of the big failings of Democrats. They, they don't have the gut instincts about good and bad people, good and bad things. It's all moral relativism. It's all kind of, well, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Everybody makes mistakes, except for, you know, white male Americans who are the bad guys for white male Republican Americans. Pardon me. Who are the bad guys always and forever for everything. We're, we're the cause. White male Republicans in America are the cause of all the world's great evils. And everybody else is just kind of misunderstood or oppressed or you know, having a tough day. And why do we have to get on China's case so much? Right. We don't you know, we do bad things, too. This is the this is the pathway to liberal lunacy. Moral relativism is really the foundational uh, foundational precept of all contemporary uh, liberalism in America today. And I know that I hate using the term liberal for them, but they've hijacked our language for their own purposes, too. They're not they're anti-liberty. They really should not be called liberals. They've made liberal a term that conjures up some degree of disdain in the listener's mind because we know that liberals just keep doing that. They're just getting crazier and crazier, doing dumber and dumber things, always pushing into more areas where a, a, a rational approach would be contrary to whatever it is that they're doing. But they they have had a, a remarkably clear strategy for a long time. The left in this country has had a strategy of use government to implement their will. Use power in ways they want to. Now, I know that's, that's such a straightforward, such a simple thing to say, almost overly simplistic, right? But don't we do the same thing? No, we don't. No, conservatives sit around and they, they want to reach across the, the aisle. They want, you know, durability of institutions. They want, uh, you know, to, to hold hands and sing songs together, you know, and... and and find the middle path, the third way, whatever. Look, look at the last 20 years in American politics and, and find me the place where conservatives, where the right decided they were just going to make the other side, you know, just deal with it. We're ramming it through. We're getting it done. Stinks for you. I can think of tons of places the Democrats have done that. Tons of places. I mean, and you look at the Obama administration. Look what they did with Obamacare, for example. Uh, but look, look what they did. They're the ones that created the instability in Congress from shifting the rules to suit their temporary partisan whims. Right? They're the ones with Harry Reid that nuked the filibuster. We called it the nuclear option. Turned out it wasn't, I guess, so nuclear because they were willing to do it. But Trump has been correct. Trump has been seeing this for what it is when it comes to China for a long time. And that's one of the places where his his outsider status and willingness to break with the elite consensus of both parties on China was somewhat 
uh, revolutionary. That, that was such a big change. And he was right. And all the people that study this and say, oh, but China, you know, his approach to it. And, uh, no, no, no. Uh, it, it, is, it is essential that we see the challenges ahead for what they really are here. And the Chinese Communist Party is a big problem for the whole world. A big problem with the Belt and Road Initiative, a big problem with the really mercantilist approach, the, the taking of, uh, you know, the, the leveraging of Chinese authority and power to strip as much in the way of natural resources from the developed world as possible while also undermining democracy in those countries and doing whatever they can. I mean, a really mercenary approach from the Chinese Communist Party is what you get. We can either allow this to continue on or we say that we're going to see China for what it is as a country, which is one that has to be dealt with now firmly and where there are zero-sum aspects of our relationship. That's the way it has to be going forward. Or else we can have them dictating what, what can be in our movies, what companies are allowed to uh, allowed to exist and thrive in America because of the global pressure that China can bring. Uh, you know, we, we can allow them to influence our politics directly and indirectly the way they've been doing. You know, we can allow them to try to buy off people like, oh, I don't know, Hunter Biden and just sit around and act like it's no big deal. This is the future we face, folks. This is the choice that we all have to make. Do we confront China or not? Joe Manchin has become the new Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, during Obama's presidency, said he would do everything in his power to stop Obama. He's also repeated that now during the Biden presidency by saying he would do everything in his power to stop President Biden. And now Joe Manchin is doing everything in his power to stop democracy and to stop our work for the people, the work that the people sent us here to do. Here you have a member of Congress from New York saying that Joe Manchin taking a position to represent the state of West Virginia that is completely within his scope and within the rules, that Joe Manchin's decision itself is a threat to or a stoppage of democracy, a stoppage of democracy. What? This is democracy. This is the system we have. And I know we have a republic, not a democracy, but as you know, Democrats use these terms uh, interchangeably all the time. But it is important for everybody, I think, to know. It is important for everyone to remember that, the, the Democrats could they could be able to they, they could get around this this uh, filibuster entirely. They all they would need to do is just win more Senate seats. And that's the whole reason that we have some of these procedural checks we do is because decisions have been made by our elected government in the past that they want for for big things. You want big majorities. And, and, and so that's why what we see here is just changing of one's position democrats change how they feel about things like the filibuster depending on what is most advantageous for them and for their power that is it there's no broader principle there's there's no bigger nope that is it that is all and i just think it's so interesting that that mansion is now being treated like the bad guy by democrats because he won't go along with hr1 which is a highly partisan and would be a very Fissile political act uh, would re- result in a lot of uh, a lot of bad blood, a lot of dissension, 
among Republicans. And, and what, what we'd see is the attempt to federalize elections. It would result in a lot of lawsuits and constitutional challenges. Uh, so Joe Manchin saying, no, I'm not going to go along with that. And what do they say? That this is somehow uh, it's not even obstructionist. It's stopping our democracy from working. No, this is our democracy. This is our system. When things don't happen the way the Democrats want, they can do this babyish crying thing. They can say, oh, but you're you're you know, you're a threat to our democracy. And they can say all this stuff. It's nonsense. No, this is the way the system actually works. It doesn't it doesn't have to give the outcome that Democrats want for it to be legitimate, even though that's how they think about all of this, even though that is their approach. Right. The moment that they, you know, because a lot of this stuff, they know they're not going to convince people. They're not going to get the political support they need. So they just want the raw exercise of power through the system to be open to them. And while I don't think that they're going to do it anytime soon, there will now be an effort to still get rid of the filibuster. Uh, there'll be an effort to do that through continued pressuring uh, pressure on cinema and on mansion and on anybody who has been a problem for them in this regard. So don't think that this is over. It's not over. They'll continue on in whatever ways that they can. Um, but for right now, what we're seeing is Obama, you know, we're seeing a kind of Obamaism through the Biden administration, but without a without a president that had the rhetorical uh, rhetorical abilities that Barack Obama had. I mean, look, I, I had plenty of problems with Obama and was a a staunch critic of his administration for all eight years. But the guy's better at giving a speech than Joe Biden is. I don't think that's a newsflash to anybody. I think that's just observing reality. But now you have an Obama administration through Biden's stewardship, in a sense, right, through Biden as the conservator of the uh, Obama vision for America and even with many of the Obama people around Biden, as we know, but they're not going to get Obamacare through. They're not going to they're not going to be able to get these transformational legislative acts through. So they're just going to spend a ton of money. I mean, they're going to spend money in ways that you wouldn't have even thought was was possible 10 years ago. The federal government's just going to spend, 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 spend. Uh, and then they're going to be they're going to play a lot of games uh, rhetorically on talking about the threat to our democracy and, oh, the need for a January 6th commission. Right. They, they went from the most important issue in America for four years was the fake, phony Russia collusion lie. That was the most important thing in America for those years. Now, fast forward a little bit. What is the most important thing today? The January 6th insurrection. Now, does anybody really think that these are these are issues? If, if you were to line them up, you'd say, yeah, they're taking a fair minded view of these things. And it really is about protecting our sacred democracy. Of course not. These are issues that are first and foremost about the power of the Democrat Party and destroying anybody who would get in the way by creating other false or exaggerated narratives of fundamental peril, existential threat to the United States. This is what Democrats have been doing. I mean, you can see this. 
These stories are of existential threat to America when there's really no threat. I mean, the Russia collusion thing was a fairy tale. It was a fantasy. didn't happen. And how much did you see on that? I mean, how many people? There are leftists who built careers on that lie. You know, there was a guy who wrote a book. He's a moron. He wrote a book called Proof of Collusion. And I remember I had a couple of Twitter exchanges with this guy. He's just a, a fantasist. The guy's delusional. I wrote a book, Proof of Collusion. There is no collusion. Didn't exist. But you read books on it. I'm sure he sold a lot of copies to, you know, the left-wing Chardonnay moms uh, living in, you know, Westchester and uh, in New York, which is a fancy suburb where Hillary Clinton is. Uh, Santa Monica or, uh, you know, or Hollywood. Uh, no, I guess not really Hollywood. That's not really where you'd have it. You'd have it. Malibu, there you go. Beverly Hills, you know, and fancy, fancy places. You know, they, they, you had all these, all these people that watched too much CNN that thought that this was really a, a real threat, that there was a real challenge to America coming from Russia collusion. And now with this with this January 6th obsession, you just see the continuation of the same strategy. They're going to remind us of this all the time. And it, it means that they don't have to explain their failings really to their own side, to their own voters. They don't have to deal with the fact that the border is open, that they're spending too much money, that jobs aren't what they should be. The economy hasn't recovered as quickly and strongly as it should because of Democrat policy, because of Joe Biden. They don't have to explain any of that. All they have to do is point and say, we're the only thing between you and the insurrectionists on the other side. We're the only thing that stops a white nationalist overthrow by force of the United States government. Now, to you and me, this sounds like the ravings of a lunatic. And it is, but it's done for a purpose. These are ravings that unfortunately are highly effective at creating a perception among Democrats that whatever they do is right. Whatever failings they have are irrelevant because they're keeping the country alive. That's right. They're like the doctor with the uh, with the trodes, you know, electrodes, the paddles, you know, going clear, clear, clear. I don't know if that really made a good electric sound. That sounded more like a duck was having a bad day. But you know what I mean, where they're taking the electrodes and they're uh, that, that, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to get in the way and say, oh, but, you know, you know, you really didn't you really didn't handle that. Uh, the patient's, you know, toe looks like it's pretty badly bruised. No, we're trying to keep the heart going. That's the that's their approach to dealing with criticism, or anything else because of the insurrection. That's all that matters. Whenever they need to, they'll go back to this. They'll they'll raise this issue as the primary point of discussion. Oh, the insurrection. Oh, oh, you don't support us on spending? You must you must be one of those people that supports the insurrectionists. Oh, you think Joe Biden's as bad running the economy as Barack Obama was? Oh, well, don't pay attention to that. You, you, you're one of the insurrectionists. It's now the preferred. It used to be you're a traitor for Russia. Now insurrectionist has has replaced that as the preferred baseless slur of Democrats against their political opponents, which is why this issue is so potent for them, so powerful for them, because it allows the mob to continue to fail and to overreach and to be a mess. The Democrat mob can continue doing all these things and feel sanctimonious while it does it. 
because they're fighting the insurrectionists. They're not, a, they're not having to look people like you and me in the eyes and explain how Joe Biden is making smart decisions for the economy when we all know Joe Biden's an idiot. He's not a smart guy, never has been a smart guy, doesn't understand how things work. But they don't want to have that conversation. They want to yell, insurrection! 